Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. Are you wearing flip-flops yet? Me neither. I never got used to the way it makes my toes feel. Maybe you're still wearing warm boots. It could always go one way or the other. It's that time of year. If you're still in the throes of winter, keep warm. Be the butterfly taking a little more time as a chrysalis before you burst forth in all of your glorious splendor. If spring comes early for you, get out and enjoy it. But wherever you find yourself, I want to invite you to lounge with me for the next hour or so. We've got stories and songs and movies and recipes, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. The lounge players have recently uncovered a new modern fable, and I can't wait for you to hear the story of the unloved man, the super-friendly bro, and the perhaps overly confident woman. Michael Kramer is here to talk with me about his adventures as both a citizen of modern New York City and his parallel life as Jarl Valgard, Stonecleaver, East Kingdom. Ruby Farley and I are going to talk about one of the greatest movie adventures ever filmed and animated, and we'll pair it with a rustic recipe that's bound to get your mouth watering. I've got a story from the Knights of the Round Table that's sure to get you in the mood for spring, and John Ballinger and Double Batch Daddy are here to keep the season cycle spinning to the music of the spheres. So, here we are, approaching the vernal equinox, the first day of spring, where the day and the night are the same length, a day of perfect balance. Sunrise in Los Angeles today came at 10 minutes before 6, and sunset arrives at 10 minutes after 6 in the evening. Almost there. As the world wakes from its winter slumber, as the ice begins to melt away from the streets and our brains alike, a period of growth begins. We want to align ourselves with that spirit of growth and make the most of it, but my God, look at the trees. They're blooming with abandon. The hills are exploding with wildflowers. The weather is welcoming, almost demanding that we get outdoors. It's all birds and bees this time of year, if you know what I mean. We've been stoic, stuck in the dark for long enough. It's time for the lightning that comes during a proper spring break, when we come down with a proper spring fever and take leave of our senses for a moment in the giddy ecstasy of warm days and jasmine-scented nights. And when we return from this pause, filled to the brim with new life, we'll be ready to get back to our pursuits with a renewed sense of purpose, and a big fat smile on our faces, a flower in our hair, wearing a great green girdle around our waists. This poem by E. E. Cummings sums up what's coming our way. Sweet spring is your time, is my time, is our time. For springtime is love time, and viva sweet love. All the merry little birds are flying in the floating, in the very spirits singing in, are winging in the blossoming. Lovers go. And lovers come, a-wandering, a-wondering. But any two 
are perfectly alone. There's nobody else alive. Such a sky and such a sun I never knew, and neither did you. And everybody never breathed quite so many kinds of yes. Not a tree can count his leaves, each herself by opening, but shining, who by thousands mean only one amazing thing. Secretly adoring, shyly, tiny, winging, darting, floating, merry in the blossoming, always joyful selves are singing. Sweet spring is your time, is my time, is our time, for springtime is love time, and viva sweet love. The season cycle turns from death to new life. It's growing green, and we're growing with it. Season cycle moving round and round, pushing life up from the cold dead ground. It's growing green.
Burglars of Ham are a Southern California theater collective that the L.A. Times calls Los Angeles' goofiest social satirists. I'm thrilled to welcome them to the lounge to perform a world premiere of their modern urban fable, The Unloved Man. Once there was a man who suspected he was not well-loved. There were several clues that led him to this sad conclusion. The unloved man went through a 16-hour day with a whole peppercorn in his front teeth and no one told him. He sent out 20 Christmas cards and received only one in return. A pre-printed card from his dentist. He was in a minor car accident and when he posted about it to his Facebook friends, he received no comments and 14 likes. Funnily enough, it was that car accident, the experience of being rear-ended on the freeway, that led to the possibility of a less unloved life for the unloved man. It was the day he met the super-friendly bro. Oh man, I am so sorry. I just looked down for a second. Are you all right? The unloved man checked himself and decided that he was, in fact, all right and physically unharmed. Before him stood an attractive, athletic-looking guy in a Dodgers cap, mid-thirties, the classic, super-friendly bro. I'm all right. I am so sorry, man. I will make this right. The two men looked at the indentation on the unloved man's bumper. The super-friendly bro made a suggestion. different ways we could handle this. Oh? We could get the insurance companies involved, or I could just write you a check instead. How much do you think the damage is? I really have no idea. I'd have to get a couple of opinions from different... How about $2,000? Whoa! That seems like a lot, actually. Whatever, right? This way, neither of us has to mess with any paperwork and our premiums won't be affected. Well, okay. Okay, then. Let's do it. The unloved man went back to work, the check in his pocket. He saw his co-worker sitting in her cubicle. She was a confident woman, perhaps overly confident, and the unloved man was afraid of her. Still, he approached her with some uncharacteristic swagger. I just got a lot of money for nothing. What do you mean? This guy dented my bumper a little, and he gave me 2,000 bucks. Look at the check. (laughs) I got bad news. His check's no good. What? That check will bounce. Mark my words. The perhaps overly confident woman turned to her computer, apparently bored with the conversation, and him. Wait, how do you know that? I wasn't born yesterday. You should just rip it up. I think I'll try cashing it. Hopefully it's good. I should at least try. (sighs) Sure. Who cares? No one. That's right. No one. That afternoon, the unloved man went to his bank and deposited the check. He also paid some bills. And a few days after that, he received notification from his bank that he was overdrawn and being charged some hefty fees because, as predicted, the check from the super-friendly bro had indeed bounced. It was returned to him in the mail. That... that ass... With growing rage, he realized that the super-friendly bro was, in fact, the man who bounced checks. For short, let's call him the bouncing bro. As he tore the check into tiny shreds, he saw something. The address of the bouncing bro. 
he clutched the tiny piece of paper and climbed in his rented car. Hey, sorry to bother you, but... Yes, I know. That check I gave you was no good. Yeah, it bounced, and I was... Sorry about that, man. I changed banks recently, and I accidentally pulled out my old checkbook. Come in. I'll get you another check. The unloved man did not trust this bouncing bro, but something compelled him to cross over the threshold. As he stood waiting in the foyer, he couldn't help but notice that the bouncing bro had a pool. He imagined the scene of a backyard barbecue, smoke rising from grilled meats, ice sloshing in drinks, friends razzing each other. He pictured talking to a cute but accessible woman poolside, and then two buddies grabbing him from behind, swinging him by his arms and legs until they launched him into the pool. <laughs> it was all in good fun. And anyway, here you go. Sorry about that. This check is good. I swear. Hey. You want a beer? Okay. Come on through. I'm watching the game. The unloved man joined his host on a large couch with recliners built into it. They watched a basketball game. Toward the end of the game, they got hungry and ordered a large pizza, which the bouncing bro insisted on paying for. In the course of conversation, it was revealed that the unloved man had never seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The bouncing bro insisted on putting in Fellowship of the Ring, the extended version and they watched it while devouring half a pan of brownies and drinking three more beers each. When the unloved man noticed his host yawning, he got up and said he had to be going. They made loose promises to watch the next two movies at some later date. The unloved man walked out to his car and drove home, blasting a classic rock song by Boston. It had indeed been more than a feeling. It had been the best day of his life. His good mood carried through the weekend into the next week at work, when he hunted down the perhaps overly confident woman to let her know just how wrong she had been. Hey there. How's it hanging? Uh, fine. Okay. Hey, guess what? You were right. That check was no bueno. Remember, I was in a car accident, and the guy gave me a check. Well, it bounced, but... No surprise there. But get this. The guy's address was on the check, so I went over to his house... And I got him to give me another check. <laughs> another check? Yeah! Man, you never learn! Oh my... <laughs> this got the unloved man thinking and worrying. So at lunch he went to his bank to see if the check had cleared. And to his dismay, the perhaps overly confident woman called it. The check had been returned, and he was once again charged costly fees. He raced to the bouncing bro's house. As he drove, questions ran through his mind. Why is this happening, Why is this to, me? happening to me? Why am I, Why such, am I a such a sucker? sucker? Is there some connection between my willingness to take shit and my inability to be loved? He thought of Aragorn's bravery as the Nazgul descended upon Frodo and his hobbit friends at Weathertop. Aragorn was sensitive and was wise in the medicinal powers of various plants. But he also didn't take any shit. The unloved man knew it was time to stand strong. Hey, buddy. What's up? You must think I'm pretty stupid. What's wrong? You wrote me another bad check. Oh, shit! Are you kidding me? Fuck, what is the matter with me? This is from the old bank account again. See, I have two 
checkbooks. Look. Listen to me, man. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. I know. You must think I'm a total dick. I swear these are honest mistakes. Seriously, look. They look exactly the same. But this is the good one, and this is the old one. Here, look. There. The bad one is in the trash. Bye-bye. Now I can write you a check from the good one. Let me find a pen, and I'll do it right in front of you. I don't think so. Maybe you could just give me cash. I would totally go to the ATM, but... I'm a teeny bit baked. You smoke? Marijuana? Yeah. Um, I've... Sometimes. I, I just don't feel like I should drive right now. You already know I'm not a great driver. Hey, what are you doing right now? You busy? I don't know. You up for a little Twin Towers? Come on, what do you say? Pizza's on me. I owe you, obviously. And so, the unloved man experienced the second best day of his life. Or maybe it was a tie. At any rate, another huge pizza was consumed, a little weed was smoked, and at the end of the night, the unloved man had spent more quality time in Middle Earth, where he felt not entirely unloved. Oh, man. What time is it? Sorry to keep you up so late. You probably have to work tomorrow. It's okay. I never wrote you that check. Let me take a leak, and I'll be right back. The bouncing bro ambled out to the bathroom. The unloved man could hear him humming softly, urinating, washing his hands. As the unloved man waited, he contemplated. If he got his $2,000, he might never find out what happened to the two great friends. And he wasn't exactly thinking of Sam and Frodo. He quietly picked the bad checkbook out of the trash, placed it in plain sight on the table, and hid the good checkbook under a magazine. The bouncing bro returned from the bathroom. He wrote another bad check. He handed it to the unloved man and gave him a manly one-armed hug. Drive safe, bro. And with that, the unloved man walked out the door. It was three in the morning. The last time he had stayed up this late was... maybe college? Hard to say. He took note of how quiet the street was, how empty the freeway was, and the unloved man was happy. Perhaps the bouncing bro is putting him on, going through the motions of friendship as a means of distraction. It didn't matter. To the unloved man, those motions felt good. And so the unloved man decided to keep moving on his quest for meaning and comfort and love. With so many of us working from home, now is a great time to adopt a pet from L.A. Animal Services. With six animal service centers throughout the city, L.A. Animal Services has dogs, cats, rabbits, hamsters, turtles, guinea pigs, chickens, and more available for adoption and ready to join your family. If you're not ready for that kind of commitment, consider fostering a cat or dog for a couple weeks. There are huge benefits for the animals. Studies show that time in a home is a huge stress reliever for animals. Plus, you'll be able to get great networking photos and videos of your furry house guests during their stay. And when you go out to run errands or take walks, they'll be exposed to a whole new neighborhood of potential families. 
And if you're lucky enough to already have a pet, LA Animal Services has lots of benefits for you and your furry friends. All city residents are eligible for multiple vouchers for free or low-cost spay and neuter services. Every month, there are virtual advice sessions to help pet families with their questions, doggy dialogues, cat chats, and rabbit roundtables. And if you need assistance feeding your animal companion, you can make an appointment for the Pet Food Pantry in Van Nuys or South Los Angeles every Sunday from 1 to 4. To see adoptable pets and make appointments for services, go to LAAnimalServices.com or call 888-452-7381. Michael Kramer and I have known each other since we were teenagers. We both grew up in Sacramento, and we spent a few years studying theater together at Sacramento State University. We'd spend hours in the green room of the theater discussing politics, movies, acting, writing, and philosophy. And here we are, more than a few years later, doing exactly the same thing. Michael went on from Sac State to receive an MFA from San Francisco State University and a PhD from City University of New York, where Michael is currently serving as an adjunct professor of media studies. Michael is also the author of the definitive book on folks who love to get together and reenact life in the Middle Ages. It's called Medieval Fantasy as Performance, The Society for Creative Anachronism and the Current Middle Ages. We spoke for almost two hours, but somehow I managed to cut it down to this 15-minute segment. You belong to this group called the Society for Creative Anachronism. Or mm-hmm. SCA. Can you tell me a little bit about what the SCA is? I wrote the book on the SCA. I can tell you a lot about what the SCA is. The SCA is a bunch of people who like to dress up and play medievally framed make believe. People have divided the world into regions where they get to play a king game. And the way the king game runs is that on a regular basis, two to three times a year, depending on which kingdom you're in, they hold a tournament where people dress up in armor, they hit each other with swords made of rattan. And uh, the winner of that tournament is crowned the, the ceremonial king of the game for four to six months. It's not like at a gymnasium. You guys go out into the woods, so, yeah? When I was in California, 80% of what we did in the SCA was done in the woods or in a pasture somewhere maybe at a county park that allowed camping right but normally we were camping for 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 two nights we would do these big communal camping things right fires sing-alongs a lot of partying and then there would always be some cooking there would be uh, arts displays or arts competitions or arts classes Uh, where people are learning about various medieval or historical arts. And then on Sunday, there would be another court and everybody would go home. I'm curious how you became a part of the SCA. And then what was it that resonated with you about the SCA? Uh, My mom was a member of the Unitarian Church. And the SCA and the Unitarian Church had a lot of overlap. And so when I was four, five, six, I knew the SCA existed. And I saw the demonstrations that they did at the shopping malls. And, you know, if you grew up in Sacramento, you ran into the SCA a lot as a kid. 
And so I always wanted to join because I'd always had a fascination with swords and knights and, and things like that. I'd wanted to be a knight when I was five. And you have stayed with it. You still participate to this day. What is it that keeps you involved with the SCA? What do you love about it? I like the combat, although, you know, at 57, the combat wears on you. I like the fighting a lot, probably more than any other aspect of the SCA. I like the camaraderie. There is a community of like-minded people, and it's a community that I've been involved with my whole life now. It really is attempting to recreate in our modern society a medieval structure of society. In my book, I coined the phrase interpersonal performance. It was kind of to dovetail with a phrase that I think comes from, comes from Nikolai Avrainov, the theater for oneself. In the SCA, you're, you have a certain amount of theatricality. Everybody's wearing medieval or Renaissance clothing. You have uh, assumed names. You have conventions, right, that you operate within. It's not a script. Very rarely do you find people who keep up a pretense that they're in the Middle Ages all the time. You're doing this very theatrical stuff within the community uh, as part of kind of an improvisational party, but one without an audience. I love this Facebook post you posted recently. Uh, you said, when I was young, I wanted to design and build my own castle. I would have a hall for feasting and a jousting field, an archery range, a pond for fishing and a stable. Do you know what I want now? An apartment in a doorman building overlooking Central Park. And I would love for you just to take us through that journey uh, in your own consciousness, how the castle building you became the Central Park apartment you. Well, I wanted to, to be in that medieval world most of the time, right? I wanted an SCA performance surrounding my life if not 24-7, maybe 24-5, I wanted to have a castle. And at some point, I realized that for me, I didn't want to live in the SCA 24-7 anymore, which I had wanted to, certainly when I was in high school. And even if this was like Aubrey, where my mom lives now, my mom used to own a 10-acre ranch in Aubrey outside of Fresno, and I lived there for a while. I could have built an awesome castle on that piece of property. But, uh, you know, I didn't want to stay in Aubrey full time. The nearby big town is Fresno. Nothing against Fresno. I, I, I've spent a lot of good time in Fresno, but it's not New York City where I choose to live. <laughs> I have some issues with Fresno, which we're not going to get into. You live in Brooklyn, yeah? Yeah. Tell me what you love about living in Brooklyn. And tell me what you love about being at the Kings game during the SCA festivals where you're out in the woods in a tent living with other people. In Brooklyn, I love that there is always something interesting, always something different, and at the same time, always something familiar. And I love where I live. I live a couple blocks from the park. Prospect Park is a great park. I love spending time there. I go there almost every day. There's great pizza in the neighborhood. Um, I like living in a place where people from all over the world are in my neighborhood. And uh, now, as a teacher, as a professor, I, I teach on one of the most linguistically diverse college campuses in the United States. 
And that is a thing that I just love. I love being at the crossroads of the world, which, you know, Times Square is. I used to live right on Times Square, actually. And then contrast, compare that with your time out with your mates in the SCA. That is a unique moment of friendship with a group of people who are bound together by their interest in this very odd activity that's not at all normal. It's very nerdy. It is a lot of people who didn't fit in 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 high school who found a place where they fit in. That's a very cool thing. If I hear you correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you love about living in the city is the diversity. Mm -hmm. And what you love about being out with SCA is the community. You're welcoming and embracing diversity and also welcoming and embracing commonality. That is a very, uh, I think, important dichotomy, right? And, and one that I think it's, it's, it's fair to embrace. One of the things that, uh, that I run into a lot in my philosophizing is that uh, tension between a community that identifies as a community and a multicultural society and how that tension has to find avenues to satisfy both of those impulses. Those tensions are real and they exist. So within this inherently conservative organization, I mean, we are trying to conserve the ethics and the ideas of the Middle Ages. Right. You are a progressive voice. Even though there's a lot of progressive things that I don't like or I don't agree with, in general, I fall on the side of progress. I want to just explore a couple of areas of balance for you. I know you are a gun owner mm -hmm. and a gun enthusiast. Yep. Tell me a little bit about what you enjoy about guns. Okay, there's probably the, uh, the psychological element that a lot of people critical of, uh, of gun use point out, which is uh, a feeling of power and a feeling of empowerment. There is a fantasy element that you get when you're shooting. And it's not that, oh, I wish I was shooting up, shooting up and killing people. But just like I enjoy doing fantasy combat in the SCA, when I'm out shooting, I could enjoy the fantasy of being in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie okay? um, or, uh, or Die Hard or, or a cowboy movie or something like that. There is a, an adrenaline rush that comes from firing guns. It's definitely an adrenaline rush, right? For me, yeah. I think it's just primal. Yeah, and it is. And that's it's a really good way to look at it and particularly living in the urban society, especially when I was living in, in Manhattan. It's such a false constructed world and it takes you farther and farther away from the primal. And I like to go back to the primal. I think that it's natural for us to do so. Throwing axes, mm -hmm. shooting arrows, mm -hmm. all that stuff is sort of fun in the same way, but the gun is louder. Gun's just louder. I, I, I do throw axes. I do shoot arrows. The gun's louder. And it's, it's, it's frankly, it's more fun. So what do you think about gun control? The place where I come down on the side of gun control is uh, in terms of background checks. I, I support expanded background checks uh, at gun shows. I could be convinced that there should be some form of, uh, of, of gun safety training. I actually think everybody should take a little gun safety training, but I am pretty libertarian beyond that. I'm no longer a member of the NRA. I canceled my NRA membership over politics uh, and, and 
and specific things the NRA was doing that I just couldn't associate with. Things like their non-response to the killing of Philandro Castile. I don't care what they say. It was just a racist response. Here was a, a black gun owner who was not reaching for his gun at a carry permit and informed the police officer that he had his gun with him, uh, did everything right, and the cops shot him. What bothered me about the NRA's response to that was this is exactly the sort of thing they're supposed to be up in arms about. And they didn't get up in arms about it. And the only reason I could see for it was because it was a black guy. I want to switch gears and get into your pop culture versus high culture. I am both a NASCAR fan and a Shakespeare fan. I love Shakespeare. I study Shakespeare. I perform Shakespeare, right? Um, I am both a pro wrestling fan and an opera fan. There's a lot of similarities between opera and professional wrestling in terms of that, you know, over-the-top melodrama. But at the same time, they, they aren't taste groups that overlap a lot. Although you'd be surprised how much they do overlap in New York City. Finally, I know you have friends and family that cover a wide political spectrum. Oh boy, do I. So I'm wondering, what are the views that you hold that most bother your friends on the left? Uh, that's my view on guns. I think there's a big problem with the constitutional uh, position on guns, which is one that I hold, which has been exposed through militia activity, through the storming of the Capitol, right? Um, and, I, and you can read what Hamilton would say about something like that. And you can read what Jefferson would say about something like that. And everybody knows Hamilton and Jefferson hated each other. But I, I do think that, the, that a lot of the conservatives who are basing their uh, rejection of the, the election in the constitution, in rebelling against what they consider to be tyranny, you know, you can find all of that in the constitutional convention, in, in the Federalist Papers. That's very problematic, right? But then I've always realized that was problematic. I always said that, that, that the Civil War was the ultimate test of the Second Amendment, look who won. But I do hold a very libertarian view on guns. I have been you know, blocked on Facebook and things like that by uh, some of my liberal friends who are offended or bothered by my position on that. And the other one recently, I've gotten a lot of pushback from some of my progressive friends on my insistence that I stay friends with my conservative friends. And my position on democracy is that it requires us to have some support and respect for the people who don't agree with our views or are not a member of our political faction. If you're a Democrat and believe in democracy, you got to be willing to, to drive a Republican to the polls. And what about the, the flip side of that? My position on health care, I, uh, I support single payer, Canadian style single payer is what I'd prefer to see. And uh, the fact that I am pro-choice and I am very strongly pro-choice I'm very strongly pro-gay rights, pro-LGBTQ rights. In particular, being pro-choice has pushed some of my conservative relatives and friends away. Well, you are a man who 
to my mind, seems to embody a willingness to hearing all sides of an issue and making a rational and informed decision based on the facts as you see them. Can I say something that will uh, please my progressive friends more than my conservative friends? Right? Sure. <laughs> I don't think every side of an issue is valid. And there are some sides of an issue that I'm not willing to listen to. I'm not willing to listen to either neo-Nazis or members of the Klan and give them the credibility of me taking them seriously. I do draw a line there. Now, my conservatives will say, well, you're really willing to listen to socialists and don't, shouldn't you cut them off? You know what? I am willing to listen to socialists and no, I'm not gonna just cut them off. And I realize my conservative friends think I'm a hypocrite in that regard. I don't care. <laughs> there you go. It's always good to reconnect with old friends, even if you haven't spoken to them in a while. Somehow you get to pick up where you left off, and you discover that time has smoothed the rough edges, and you can skip like a river rock from one idea to the next. Michael's textbook, Medieval Fantasy as Performance, The Society for Creative Anachronism and the Current Middle Ages, is available on Amazon.com. What a day for a daydream What a day for a daydreaming boy And I'm lost in a daydream Dreaming about my bundle of joy And even if time ain't really on my side It's one of those days for taking a walk outside I'm blowing the day to take a walk in the sun and fall out my face on somebody's new mowed lawn I've been having a sweet dream I've been dreaming since I woke up today It's starring me and my sweet thing Cause she's the one who makes me feel this way And even if time is passing me by a lot I couldn't care less about the dues you say I Daydream will last long into the night Tomorrow at breakfast you may pick up your ears Or you may be daydreaming for a thousand years What a day for a daydream Custom made for a daydreaming boy And I'm lost in a
Welcome back. This is the dinner and a movie segment. And I'm here once again with my daughter and fellow culinary cinephile, mm. Ruby Farley. I like that title I was just given. I accept. <laughs> and we've got a good pairing we do. today. Oh boy. I think we heartily agree that we are really looking forward so to talking excited. about this. But I do want to tease it. Just a little bit. In my research, as we started doing this podcast, I stumbled upon the uh, Holly King for the holiday episode. And this battle that exists in sort of pagan cultures between the Holly King and the Oak King. So at spring, the Oak King kind of comes back to life. And he's green and verdant. And that led me to the concept of the green man which is sometimes found as little altars right. in the forest. I mean, there are several like pagan deities that have to do with earth and masculinity and giving back to people. And that led to the idea of the green man in literature. Now, right. as a child, it comes in as Peter Pan. Right. But as an adult, and this leads to our <laughs> introduction of our movies for this week... Ruby? Robin Hood. <laughs> the great. There uh, are many. So many versions of this story. Some of them are really earnest. The yeah. Kevin Costner version was sort of a flopper. Robin Hood is, he's not only, it's not only a story, it's like a symbol. Right. You know, of power to the people. Um, and the Disney cartoon is really good. I love. It's just like, this is the story, and they're going to tell it to you in the simplest way possible, and also in the loveliest way possible, because it's just a lovely story. You just can't go wrong. Robin Hood and Maid Marian and Little John, and you know, you get you get all of it. You get all the lovely characters. And it's just lovely. It's, it's just, just like, it's perfect. Sweet, simple, you and need, lovely. Everything you need. Um, but the version that we are going to heartily recommend mm. uh, this week is the... Best version ever, which is the 1938. It's just Errol Flynn Robin Hood. So beautiful. Every shot is just like you get to go on a little vacation. Like you're just like, oh my god, somebody's just made this to look perfect, and it's perfect. Hundred percent consistently fantastic. It's also like the Disney version, very faithful to the source material. It's really telling the tales and also lovely. And also, you you just watch it and you feel good. So for the folks who don't know, a, a quick right. Robin Hood synopsis. Mm-hmm. King John has usurped the throne from his brother. Richard, who's on crusades across the land, fighting for freedom and justice and all the good stuff that Richard stands for. And John is the opposite of that. Yes. John is a crybaby. He's a little spoiled brat. He's greedy. Yeah. He's lazy. Yeah. Stealing money from the people. Yeah. He's bad Never news. Never be satisfied. And Robin is kind of a noble, but he really serves... The people, most the, of all. Indeed. Yeah. That's, that's Robin Hood's whole thing, is taking a little bit from the people that can stand to get taken from and giving to the people that really need it and are working hard and are contributing and moving forward the society from the people's perspective, not just the 1%. And one of the best scenes, I think, is when one of the merry men gets caught hunting in the forest, and Robin Hood defends him, and then he brings the dead deer to the castle with him, and he places it in front of King John, and is like, is this what you want? You want everything? Okay, fine, here's everything. Yeah. But you're not the rightful king. And it's like, oh! Tells him right to his face. Yeah. In the court. In, in the front middle of, of a huge party. Yeah. He doesn't care. 
he knows that he can fight his way out. Yeah. Because he's Errol Flynn. And another one of my favorite things about this movie is is the violence isn't too much. But there's amazing fighting sequences Incredible. in the movie. There's so much great chair fighting. Yeah. And I had a dream the night after I, we watched this movie that I had a sword fight with someone with a chair. Like, it inspired me so much. I was, like, going to sleep thinking about that scene. I was like, oh, my God, that choreography was so amazing. And I just, like, had it happen in my subconscious. The other thing I love is the role that women play. Yeah. Absolutely. That we talk about the Merry Men and we talk about King John and mm-hmm. King Richard, but really... You gotta talk about Marion. Maid Marion and her handmaiden both, like, hook up with She's Robin like... and his right-hand guy, and they're feeding information from the castle to the rebels. Yeah. When she first meets Robin Hood, she's like, oh, you're a villain. Right. You know, you're a bad guy. You're against all my, that my people stand for. And then when she finds out what's going on with these people, she's like, oh, that's wrong. This needs to get fixed. What can I do to help? She's not a damsel in distress at all. You get the strong, independent woman who's like, I have the power to change things. I'm a person in power. What can I do? Let me help. And this marriage of the male and the female that then can do all kinds of amazing, great things. I just love it. I'm going to give you a little um, Rorschach test here, verbally, on the cast. Okay. I'm going to say that... Each member of the cast, and you give me a word, maybe two, of Bring what they're like. Okay. Yeah, Errol Flynn. Charming. Calculating. I think that he, like, his acting, just spot on. Olivia um, de Havilland. Dreamy. She's got, like, the most amazing eyes, and just, like, her whole behavior is just so, like, you just fall in love with her. You're just like, oh, my God. Claude Rains, who plays King John. Uh, stately. A bit of an ass. And Basil Rathbone. As his right-hand man. Oh, yeah. He's douchey. Like, old-timey douche. It's a stunning cast. All-star. Yeah. Uh, And the great thing about this movie, too, is just the spectacle of it. This is the golden age of cinema, Cinema. 1938. It's such a great story. You fall in love with every single character. It's just beautifully portrayed. All of the choreography, all of the scene work, all of the beautiful shots that you get of the outside and all of the sets. It's incredible all the way around. You'll leave feeling inspired and better about life. There's a lot of eating in this movie. People just tearing chickens apart, picking up huge legs of lamb. When Robin Hood meets Friar Tuck, he steals a giant piece of mutton from him while he's sleeping. So we had to try to find a dish that was suitably spectacular, but also tied in. And I sort of went through, venison was recommended to me as being perfect because of the deer and all that stuff. Really hard to come by. I'm not a huge fan of venison either. And then mutton, which is really tricky to cook. Most of the recipes I found were like, just let it stew for like eight days. Mm -hmm. And then it'll soften up and be delicious. (laughs) And chicken, there's lots of chicken in the movie. but have always done chicken. Come on, chicken. Whatever. So we needed a spectacular dish. Something a little flashy. So we uh, settled on (laughs) the most flashy of all the meats. I think so. The tomahawk ribeye steak. Which is a two-inch ribeye. Still attached Ooh. to the rib. Whole bone. It has that spectacle. Yeah. It has a handle on it. Yeah. You could pick it up and gnaw it. Looks it. like something that like a caveman, you'd see a caveman lugging around. You could substitute a, a, a cowboy steak, yeah. which is a little thinner cut. 
You could also get these steaks with the giant external bone right. <laughs> trimmed off. But we what really, was the fun in that? So we simply seasoned it, a little salt, a little pepper mm-hmm. all over the place. And then we are smoking it mm-hmm. with some delicious cherry wood, mm-hmm. which is going to infuse that, that meat. And then we're going to take it off, let it rest in about 20 minutes. And then we're going to kick the heat up to high. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put it back on there for about three minutes each side to give it a nice char. Sear that baby. And then we're going to just pick it up and put our faces in it. Yeah. You could do this dish on the stove and in the oven. You can bake it. You can sear it. If you have a cast iron skillet, sear it and then put that whole thing in the oven. That's another great way to do it. Or you can sear it on your stovetop and then put it on a cookie pan, put it in the oven and bake it. There you go. About 250, 300 degrees for... 30, 45 minutes. It's a really simple dish to cook. But man, if you're in for an adventure. Go for the tomahawk steaks, my friend. And pair it with the great, spectacular, amazing Robin Hood from 1938. Oh, yeah. Which is available on HBO Max. All right. So we're back. Oh, my gosh. This (laughs) smells so good. So once again, we smoked this. For about an hour. Then we fired that heat all the way up oh, to about 450-500. Put the back on for about three minutes each side to give it a nice char on the outside. And here we are with our tomahawk oh. steak. And we're going to tuck it. And it just looks amazing and tender and juicy. and mm. Mm. Oh, my God. It's so rich. My bat was too big. It's so good. It's really rich. Melt the char... Gives it a really nice little kick, and the smoke is in there. The great thing about this kind of steak, too, with the bone in, is that you can kind of service everybody from your folks who like it really rare Mm -hmm. to the folks who like it a little more well done. So there you go. It's Robin Hood plus a tomahawk steak. You can't go wrong. Do it. You can't. And don't forget to let us know what your experience was. Cook on the Tomahawk Steak and watching Robin Hood. We want to hear from you. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or shoot us an email with photos and stories at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com. Thanks, Ruby. You're welcome. Thank you. Gorgeous steak. You know Al Gore as the former vice president of the United States, but did you remember that he's also an Oscar winner? The 2006 film, An Inconvenient Truth, won the Oscar for Best Documentary of 2006. In it, Mr. Gore presented a slideshow that explained the science behind climate change. In the 14 years since his Oscar win, Mr. Gore and his scientific advisors have been constantly updating that slideshow with the most current information on the science, on the insane weather events happening all over the world, but also on the positive changes taking place that give reasons for optimism. Now, what if I told you that you could get your very own live presentation of this new slideshow by someone personally trained by former Vice President Gore? What if I told you they could present to your club, church, community group, or any other gathering you could think of, small or large? What if I told you they could present it over Zoom, and that they would do it for free? Well, it's all true, and all you have to do to schedule a presentation is email your request to the Los Angeles chapter of the Climate Reality Project at laclimatereality at gmail.com. That's laclimatereality at gmail.com. 
and to learn more about the other wonderful work happening at the L.A. chapter of the Climate Reality Project, visit www.laclimatereality.org. Let me tell you a story. It's an old story from the Knights of the Round Table. It's got all the ingredients that make up a tasty tale. Adventure, temptation, deception, and reconciliation. It's the perfect story for the beginning of spring, I think, as it features as its central character a mystical green knight. It's New Year's Eve. And the folks at the round table are partying like you do when King Arthur starts getting bored and calls for someone to step up and unwind him a ripping good yarn. After a bit of hemming and hawing among the court, one of the guests, a knight clad all in green, steps forward and declares, Listen up. I challenge any man here to strike me with my axe. I won't resist. But I will insist that the man must promise to come and see me at my chapel a year from now to receive a blow from me. A buzz goes around the room, as you might imagine, and eventually, one of the knights, a dude named Gawain, steps forward and volunteers for the job. The green knight bares his neck, and Gawain takes a huge swing and lops off his head with one swift stroke. The head rolls across the floor and comes to rest at Queen Guinevere's feet. To everyone's surprise, the green knight's headless torso strides across the room, lifts his own head off the floor, gives the queen a wink, and turns to Gawain. See you next year, pal. And the Green Knight struts out of the room, carrying his own head under his arm. Best party ever. That year passed slowly, but Gawain is a man of his word. He's a knight, after all. Chivalry and purity are his stock and trade. So he sets off to find the chapel of the Green Knight. Along the way, he comes upon a magnificent castle... The inhabitants, a virile lord, his super-hot lady, and a grizzled old woman welcome Gawain like the medieval rock star that he is, inform him that the Green Knight's Chapel is just up the road, and invite him to rest and ready himself in their care. Gawain has an excellent night's sleep, and in the morning, the lord of the castle heads off on a hunt and proposes to Gawain that he'll offer him any game he comes back with in exchange for something from him. Gawain agrees. But no sooner is the lord out of sight, but his wife starts flirting with him. Gawain's chivalry has him in a bind here. Uh, He certainly can't fool around with the lady of the house, but he's also honor-bound to be a good guest and not upset his hosts. After a bit of parrying without thrusting, Gwen devises a plan. He accepts the lady's offer of a kiss, but later he gives the kiss as his gift to the returning lord in exchange for the deer he's hunted. He doesn't say who he got the kiss from, and the lord doesn't press him on it. All is well. The next day, 
the flirting gets more intense. Gawain agrees to take two kisses from the lady and offers them to the lord on his return in exchange for a wild boar. Day three, the lady is all over Gawain. She's chasing him around the house and tearing off her clothes. He's doing his best to resist, but sometimes one's best isn't good enough. At one point, the lady strips off her golden green girdle and begs Gawain to wear it when he goes to see the green knight in the morning. She promises it will protect him from harm. He agrees to take it and three kisses from her. Gawain dutifully gives the lord the three kisses and gets a fox in return, but he keeps the lady's sash a secret. The next morning, Gawain ties the lady's green and gold undergarments around his waist and heads off to meet the green knight at his chapel. Gawain comes into a clearing and sees the green knight sharpening his axe next to a pile of dirt. Not exactly the chapel Gawain had expected to find. Dutifully, Gawain removes his armor and bares his neck to the green knight. The green knight takes a huge swing, but pulls back at the last minute. Gawain flinches, and the knight taunts him like a school bully. The second blow is exactly the same, except this time Gawain doesn't flinch at all. The green knight says something to the effect of, I was just testing to see if you were as big a chicken as I'd heard. Now this hits Gawain where he lives, and he orders the knight to do his worst. He's a man of principle, after all, a man of his word, a man of faith and chivalry and bravery. Give me the chop I deserve. The green knight rears back and swings his axe, but only lands a glancing blow on Gawain before he reveals himself to be the lord of the castle in disguise, magically transformed by the old hag who is really King Arthur's sorceress sister, Morgana Le Fay, in disguise. She was just having some fun testing Arthur's men and scaring the proverbial pants off Queen Guinevere with the whole severed head business. The Green Knight, or Bertilac de Hot Desert, as he's known to his friends, confesses that he had to wound Gawain because he lied about his wife's sash. It's only fair, right? Gawain begs forgiveness for being a filthy liar, but Lord Hot Desert has to confess that his wife is pretty tempting and that Gawain showed remarkable restraint. He proclaims Gawain the most honest man in the land and sends him back to Camelot with a minor flesh wound and a great story to tell. It is said that from that point on, all members of the round table wore green sashes to honor Gawain and the Green Knight. As we head into the season of spring, where the light overtakes the darkness and the earth starts to come back to life, I think this story of the Green Knight and his female allies gives us a lot to think about. But I want to focus on the idea of balance. The Knights of the Round Table were some seriously uptight dudes with strict codes of faith, morals, and ethics. Is it any wonder their New Year's Eve party was turning into a dud? A bunch of guys standing around worrying about whether they're partying correctly or not? To be fair, I don't think it's wise to completely hate on these guys. It's hard to argue against honor, courage, and justice. But it is possible that in their quest for perfection... 
they're missing out on a fair amount of wildness. As if on cue, a wild man shows up with a lesson to teach. He pulls the old, hit me with your best shot, I promise I won't hit you back, stunt. He hasn't wronged anyone. He hasn't broken a law. Is it even okay to hit him in the first place? Gawain is the perfect foil for this gambit. He's just vain enough to believe that A, he can take this guy out with one swing of his axe, and B, that even if he can't, he's going straight to heaven anyway because he's so righteous and pure. When the Green Knight's head is lopped off, note that it rolls to the foot of the Queen and gives it a wink. We might think that this is a gesture of disrespect, but it's quite the opposite. Remember, the Green Knight is in cahoots with the women in this story, and he and they have a grand plan to transform the Knights of the Round Table, even if Guinevere hasn't been properly informed of this fact. Gawain has to live with his impending doom for a year, but ultimately... He knows he has no choice but to submit himself to the Green Knight. His word is his bond, after all. So he sets off to the Green Knight's chapel, completely unaware that he's really heading off to school. And what does our Gawain learn at school? Well, first, he learns certain qualities he may not fully comprehend. He receives the gift of three wild animals, a deer, a boar, and a fox. It's important to recognize that hunting each of these animals requires a very different approach. To hunt a deer, one must be stealthy. To hunt a boar, one must be fierce. To catch a fox, one must be cunning. These are traits the lord of this house possesses, and he offers them as gifts to this chivalrous knight who is more concerned with purity, honesty, and faith than strength, stealth, and cunning. In the next lesson, Gawain must learn to face the paradoxes of his own code of honor. He knows he mustn't fool around with the lady of the house, but he's also honor-bound not to displease her. What to do? Gawain lands upon what we might call the lie that's not quite a lie. For example, the phrase, I smoked pot once, I didn't like it, and I didn't inhale can be a perfectly true statement that refers only to that one specific time, but not the thousands of others where inhaling and enjoyment most definitely took place. Gawain solves this dilemma by finding the gray area whereby he can satisfy his hostess and not entirely confess to it by offering her kisses back to the Green Knight in exchange for game. As long as the knight doesn't ask where they came from, he's off the hook. It's clever. It's devious. It works. But lying is a slippery slope. One kiss turns to two, then three, and by the end of the third day, Gawain has convinced himself that wearing ladies' underwear will keep him safe from harm. There are also big lessons about the deep and boundless passion of women, And the exchanging of kisses from the lady through Gawain to the Lord brings the spice of polyamory into the mix. By the end of the third day, Gawain, the pure and chivalrous knight of the round table, is essentially making out with almost everyone in the house, and he's wearing women's underwear as if his life depends on it. Best 
party ever. In the cold light of morning, however, he's having second thoughts. When he comes upon the green night, he is quaking in his girdle. His surety of a paradise that awaits him in the afterlife has been shaken, perhaps by the guilt of his behavior over the past three days, or perhaps it's that pile of dirt that makes up the Green Knight's chapel. Could it be a grave that's been freshly dug? At this point, there's no doubt that Gawain deserves the humiliation that's coming to him. He spent his life believing himself to be above others, and more importantly, above nature itself. But he's passed the last three days smooching with the Lord and his wife and telling a fair number of little white lies to save his hide. The Green Knight punishes Gawain for lying about the girdle, but the punishment is relatively light. He extends to the smooching and fibbing Gawain a mercy that was never shown to him as a guest of the Knights of the Round Table. He even praises Gawain as the most honest of men. Gawain returns to Camelot wounded, but resurrected. He's faced his own mortality, and most importantly, a new vision of life that incorporates the strength, sensuality, cunning, and stealth of the natural world into the upright and sometimes uptight world of civilization. The Green Knight appears as a disruptive force, but he and his ladies ultimately invite us to learn to balance human law with the laws of the natural world. As the natural world moves toward balance on the first day of spring, when the light of day and the dark of night are equal, we would do well to take one more look at the places in our own lives where we, like Gawain, might be a little out of balance. Where are you too rigid, too uptight, too bound by rules? Can you loosen up a little? Where are you too loose, too flaky, too willing to believe your own lies? Can you be a bit more thoughtful and precise? If you've followed this podcast since January, you know that we started the year by dreaming up plans. Then we looked in February for habits and relationships and attachments that can be released because they no longer serve us. And now that it's March, the month with the same name as the order to get moving... We have a plan in place, we're light on our feet, and we're ready to reconcile the wilder gifts of the Green Knight and his ladies with the upright code of the Knights of the Round Table. In that spirit, let's go after what we want like the Green Knight does. May we know when to approach quietly, when we need to fight hard, and when to use our cunning to get what we want. Let us also learn, as Gawain does, to accept the wounds we inflict on ourselves and take responsibility for our mistakes. Let's be intentional and flexible. Let's play by the rules and always be ready to rethink them. As we get ready to march into spring, let us do it in honor of the Green Knight, as well as the knights and ladies of the Round Table. Let us see clearly a way to move forward as balanced individuals 
wearing a green sash around our waist. suitable footwear before you head outside and be sure to stay in touch with us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've been hearing these last few months and you've got some spare change lying around we'd welcome a donation at our website livefromtheloungepodcast.com your credit's good with us we take all the cards and we're set up for paypal too that's livefromtheloungepodcast.com here's the who did what Live from the Lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. The Unloved Man was written by Carol and Matt Almos and featured Albert Dayan as the Unloved Man, John Beauregard as the Bouncing Bro, Carol Almos as the perhaps overly confident woman, and Matt Almos as the narrator. 
John Ballinger is our musical director, and Double Batch Daddy is our house band. You heard Cal on vocals and bass, Dutch on vocals and guitar, and Bax on drums. You can see a collection of their live performances on YouTube. Ruby Farley, in addition to being a student of culinary cinema, is also a shapeshifter of sorts. Check out all the different rubies at rubyfarley.com. Michael Kramer's book, Medieval Fantasy as Performance, The Society for Creative Anachronism and the Current Middle Ages, is available on Amazon.com. I'm Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so to share more songs, stories, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge. Thank you.